But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome back. Last we left off, 10th of May, 1864, at the Auckland Islands, the ship the Invercold was being ripped asunder. The Invercold was not a little dinghy. It was an 888-ton ship, light but also slow to respond to the helm, made with iron masts and wire rigging. She had left Melbourne on May 3rd, 1864, and was on the second leg of her maiden voyage. The 25 crew on her met with heavy showers of sleet and snow as they sailed from Melbourne. 23-year-old Robert Holding, like Renal, a veteran of the goldfields, hailed originally from England. Most of the rest of the crew were from Scotland, complete strangers to him. In fact, he only knew the names of his captain, George Delgano, and the first mate, Andrew Smith, and the second mate, James Mahoney. The ship was sailing southeast before the northwest gale hit it. By dead reckoning, it was four in the afternoon, and somewhere near the Auckland Islands. Delgano had called for a double lookout to be kept. It was uneventful for roughly three and a half hours when, at 7.40pm, a lookout shouted warning of land ahead. Delgano commanded Andrew Smith to bring the ship about on starboard track. He thought this would clear them of Adams Island. But land was reported again. They had steered clear of Adams Island and straight towards mainland Auckland Island. Delgano shouted to brace as the ship swung into an eastern heading. The wind changed, and they were steering north of east. Quote, Thinking to get passage between the small island that we first sighted and the larger one, there appeared, however, so many rocks and reefs and breakers ahead that we saw that it would be very dangerous, but still carried on sail in hopes of getting through this passage, as we knew there were no other chances of getting clear owing to the direction of which the wind was blowing. It was then very dark, with heavy rain, a hurricane blowing, and a tremendous sea running, and anyone who knows about beating a light ship off a lee shore can easily understand what our thoughts were when we expected every minute to strike. Delgano shouted to come up to the wind, the ship instead fell off and lost her headway. With the northwest storm and her leeway, the Invercold staggered sideways. They found quickly that they were 300 meters from the shore, and with every crash of the waves, that gap closed. The cliffs on the shore curved over them. The top of the mast began snapping as they struck the cliff stone. 
Delgano ordered the sounding line be cast, but quickly ordered an anchor instead to be dropped. Delgano shouted for Holding to cut the boats, normally strapped to the struts of the deck, to cut them free. The following orders were drowned out by the sounds of crunching, breaking wood. The Invercold hit, and continued to be lifted and thrown into the waves, nature's choke slam. The wire that bound the iron mast snapped, breaking the mast with it, sinking into the sea, taking with it canvas that made up the sails. As the Invercold broke apart, holding and five others held tight to the poop deck, Men and wreckage were thrown about, much and many falling into the beach. Several great waves swept over the deck, and after a third, Holding was alone. The next wave took him off too, and he was carried towards the beach. On the beach he called out, some voices answered. They spent an icy, sleepless night huddled together until the first hint of sun lit up the horizon. When they gathered all the debris they could find and stacked it against the opening of the hollow in a cliff. With that done, they counted their numbers. Nineteen men had survived. That was made up of ten seamen, the captain, two officers, the cook, the steward, the boatswain, the carpenter, and two ship's boys. The area surrounding them was severely lacking. It was mainly rocks, and there didn't seem to be any fl- fresh, clean water nearby. All the sailors could find was brackish from the sea spray and slimy from stagnation. Apart from a few birds that circled high in the sky, there seemed to be no other life on the island. The stern of the Invercold, or rather what was left of it, poked from the water. It mocked the survivors that they were in a fate worse than drowning. Even the immediate relief of biscuits and salted pork that washed ashore didn't brighten their thoughts of the future. Starvation could be pushed back a few days at best. They did have with them some matches, though they were completely soaked. Eventually they did get one to catch, and they had themselves a fire. The cook and Andrew Smith lined up all the other matches on a stone near the fire to hasten the drying process. Now, I don't know if you know, but... Uh, matches are meant to catch on fire, and some of them did. Holding was quick enough, though, to save a few of them. During all this, Delgano really wasn't helping out much. He kind of just sat around with the crew. For five days and nights, the remaining crew stayed in a lean-to, conserving what little energy and heat they had. They weren't completely alone. It seems that at least one of them had lice, and it spread to everyone else who lived in that cramped little area within no time. For this section of the story, no one actually records who took lead, but we do know that some of the men began a daily habit of going out and just exploring. Some small shellfish were found near the rocks, and a few of them found plants Renal had made beer out of. These men ate the roots raw. Others made themselves busy robbing the dead that washed up over those five days. Clothing was stripped and corpses were unceremoniously left for the tide to take. Speaking of the tide, it was rising. The Invercold was completely underwater, and the body of one of the crew caught to it, 
the waves doing little to stop it from staring back towards the survivors. The cliff seemed to be their best bet, but only a couple of men saw the value of moving from their current spot. One of them was a man named Tate. Don't get attached, we won't be hearing from him for much longer. He, along with three other men, tried walking around to the other side with their minds made up on scaling the sheer side. Three men returned the following day, reporting tracks of sheep at the top. Tate, sadly, had slipped and fallen to his death. Holding stood before the survivors and declared, quote, If there are sheep on this island, I will have some damper and mutton tonight. Who's with me? And no one moved. While he didn't scale the cliff like the other men, Holding left alone towards the hills to the north. It looked to him that the northeastern coast held promise for shelter and for food. On his trek, he saw the reported sheep tracks. There were actually pig tracks, but I guess that doesn't matter when you're starving. Too late to turn back and tell the others, too late to continue on, Holding found a crack in the rock and curled up in there for the night. Dawn broke and Holding went back to the shipwreck site. Some of the men had gone out on their own. Tate was back. He was delirious though, and close to dying. After much convincing, in which Holding described all the good he had seen on the eastern side of the island, much better than the rocks, the remaining crew all agreed to go with Holding, all except one who promised to stay with Tate until he passed. At the top of the hill, three men who had gone out on their own caught up with them and shared with them a pig carcass. Minus a liver, which the three had devoured raw the moment they caught the pig. Some men were desperate enough to get sustenance that they dropped to the ground and lapped up the few drops of blood that had fallen straight to the dirt. The sailor who stayed with Tate also showed up to get some food. Tate had sadly died, he told Andrew Smith. But he confided in holding that Tate, Tate was actually still alive when he left, but who really cares, because he was going to die soon anyway. And this sailor's best chance of survival was with the group, and he saw the smoke, and he was just so hungry. The following morning, the cook and the three sailors left a group, determined to hunt for more pigs. I should mention that it rained constantly since the ship crashed. Icy rain, barely above freezing. They didn't move much that day. Holding struggled to keep the fire going. The cook and the men returned that evening, empty-handed. The cook refused to go on any further, so the group was forced to abandon him, and so they forged on. For breakfast, they dug up some saccharine plants, supplemented them with a little bit of grass. Just grass that they had pulled up nearby. Holding writes, quote, If they knew each other a little better, things might have ended differently, as currently there wasn't much camaraderie between them. As Holding led on, tearing down bush to make it easier for them to get through, he would find men falling to the wayside, just lying down and not wanting to go on any further. The officers ranked among them, and who were ordering two ship boys to gather them water 
instead of going and getting it for themselves. Three days Holding was putting up with this. Then he snapped and just left. He turned his back on all of them. He just left. Back to the wreck to see if anything had washed up. The boatswain quickly caught up with him. They found the cook's body while hiking back. Lacking the tools to dig a grave, they covered the body in grass and kept on going. Tate was exactly where they had left him. Minus life, of course. They found some rotted meat on the shore, and the two forced it down after cooking it as much as possible. Noon the next day, four more men joined them. Someone spotted the ship's pig, or what was left of it, half under a rock. Ripping it out from under there, they devoured the loins and entrails. With apparently all the food that they could find gone, the boatswain was the first to make a suggestion. Draw lots. Draw lots and see who would give their life in order to save the rest. Holding told the group that in no uncertain terms that he would not be eating another person even if it meant his life. Thing is, if the other men were willing to do so, he just signed himself his own death warrant. He did not sleep that night. The moment dawn cast enough light for him to see, he just booked it out of there. One of the seamen, Big Dutch Peter, wanted to go with him, but Holding turned him down. And that's where we leave Holding for the moment, running for his dear life. May 15th, Musgrave writes that they have had, quote, the most varied and extraordinary weather. Food was dangerously low. Very few seals could be seen, much less caught and butchered. Not that the men could even think about going out and hunting that day, for in the morning they had been awoken by an earthquake, and so rattled by this experience that they all stayed away until dawn, reading aloud passages from the Bible for comfort. It wasn't until May 20th that the sun came out, though only once or twice a week. It was a nice change of pace before May 23rd, when they woke up to a blanket of snow covering the land. They heard a racket by the surf outside and saw loads of sea lions just swimming on by. In a mad dash, the crew jumped in their boat and rowed to the nearest island, hoping the seals would be there like they usually had been. But it was as deserted as it had been the past few weeks. In addition to the lack of seals that they were facing, the short days meant shorter hours for foraging. They had run out of saccharine plants in the near area and drunk the last of the beer. They all had stomach troubles, eating the last of the salted meat. Furthermore, Renal had developed a festering finger and Alec was on workers' comp with a sprained ankle. June 11th, the sun shone but it was very cold. Renal's finger, much to Musgrave's relief, had cleared up, and Alec's sprained ankle was on the mend. Taking advantage of the calm seas, Harry was left with the hut, and the others took the boat up the western channel. They landed and scouted, 
finding two more derelict huts from former whalers. After breakfast of some birds that they shot, they continued on to Adams Island. It was there that they found another shipwreck, a shipwreck that had not been there last time they came this way. Piling up green leaves, they lit a fire with a very noticeable smoke column. And then they waited, waited for survivors until dusk. No one came, so they put out the fire, jumped in the boat, and returned to their hut. Twenty-something clicks north of the hut, Holding was making it on his own. There were enough shellfish to sustain him for a little while. In fact, there were quite a few shellfish to be found in this area. Pocketing a few shells as proof, he made his way back to Captain Delgano and the survivors that he had left almost two weeks ago. They hadn't moved. But they had managed not to die thanks to the fire that they managed to keep going and the saccharine roots that they had managed to salvage. It's not like they could have gone very far, very quick anyway. Many of them had frostbitten feet and could barely walk. It was June 2nd, and they had been without substantial food for 23 days. They were dull. They had paper-thin, cracking skin. Their eyes were sunken in, and their hair was falling out. They were weak and couldn't control their bladder, let alone their minds. Delgano remained apathetic towards them. Andrew Smith asked Holding what had happened to the Boatswain and the others. Holding told him that they had decided to go with him back there and avoided telling him about his brush with cannibalism, lest it give this group any ideas. Holding shared his shellfish of hope with the men. The following morning, taking five men who could actually walk, Captain Delgano, Andrew Smith, James Lansfield, the carpenter, whose name was Alex Henderson, and the seaman named Fritz Hansen, and forged on northeast to gather shellfish. While scouting, Holding managed to stone a bird down as well. As they roasted the bird, Fritz was sent back to fetch the remaining six. Fritz returned 24 hours later with only four men. Fritz told Holding that the others simply refused to move, but he later confided in Andrew Smith that he woken in the morning to find them dead. After cleaning these rocks of food, they set about climbing the nearest bluff, at the top, they found little red berries. And as they pushed through the growth, Andrew Smith shouted that he could see a chimney down near the water. In fact, walking closer, they could see a village down there. What the survivors of the shipwreck of the Invercold had stumbled upon were the last ruins of the settlement of Hardwick. There was one house left somewhat intact. Many of the boards had been stripped away, but the fireplace and chimney still stood, and the roof was, it was more or less in good shape. If nothing else, it was better than what they had since scrambling onto this island. 
Holding broke off on his own and found himself a lean-to that he claimed. No one contested which worked for Holding since it was actually better than the house in terms of weatherproofing. He left the men, save John Mahoney who tagged along, and went exploring around the beach for something to eat. Indeed they did find something to eat. A seal. Now I'll, I'll save you how they managed to kill it because if you read the original uh, um, papers, it's quite visceral and it was really gross to read about. But nonetheless, they caught themselves a seal and they managed to butcher it. Holding, during the scrap, had cut himself on two fingers right down to the bone. He dressed his wound with some scrap cloth and kept on going. Back at the house, somewhat cleared by the men, they fried the seal on some scrap iron and feasted. Although it was really cold, everyone slept soundly that night. The next morning, with some renewed vigour, the remains were rummaged. Holding got himself a hatchet, and they found a handful of old tins that they planned on using for boiling seafood. A few tools were also found, some fencing wire and an old spade, and a small pile of bricks. Stragglers that this crew had abandoned eventually caught up and added themselves to the house and took their share of seal meat. Delgano again dropped the ball in leadership. Instead of taking the men that they had, splitting them to groups, sending them out to forage for food or stockpile wood or in any way improve their living conditions, he just laid there in front of the fire, hoping with the others that the people who abandoned this place would return soon and save them. Smith, Henderson and Mahoney found a spa, the horizontal piece of wood on the mast that the sail actually latches onto. They found it on the beach. They cut it into lengths and strapped it into a raft. They soon lost that raft to the waves. Bad luck since they needed the raft to hunt on beaches further out. You see, this group had quickly eaten up all the shellfish in the area and had gone back to whatever roots they could dig up. Holding knew that the best chance of survival was to move camp to a new place that hopefully, hopefully, had enough resources to sustain them. But everyone was so cozy near the fire and walking was so much work. Holding decided, fuck it, and left them where they were and headed east along the shore, eventually climbing north, nearing the northwestern tip of Port Ross, the direct opposite direction of Musgrave and his crew. It's June 19th, and Musgrave is staging another expedition. Not in a boat this time. Leaving Harry to tend to the cabin, they scaled the high mountain that Musgrave visited some five months ago. At the top, there was a large slab of rock that they named the Giant's Tomb. Musgrave recorded an estimate of how high they were, roughly 250 metres above the sea. Musgrave took some more reckonings for the size of the island, now that it was much easier to see from such a vantage point. North to south, he judged it to be 50 clicks, with half that at its widest part. 
One part of the island on the northwestern shore, where the surf crashed into the tall bluffs, fascinated him. He records the coast there appeared to have, quote, a number of dangerous sunken reefs upon which a sea breaks heavily. And as we know, the Invercold was well under water at this point. In fact, they were standing in the area that Holding had been exploring just weeks prior. Travelling back to the cabin was a lot easier, as they took the longer route through the marshes, which were frozen over. They also found themselves some small red berries to supplement the few birds that they managed to shoot down. Furthermore, they found in abundance the large leafy megaherb that was perfectly edible when boiled, and had the added benefit of helping remove the diarrhea element from the sea lion broth, which is always nice. Speaking of which, the next few days consisted of hunting down some seal, of which they found one, and scouring for mussels, of which they found many. It seems for the first time in quite a while, the spirits were higher all around for this little crew, and even more so for Musgrave, who talked about setting up a lookout, hopeful that a ship would pass, but also fearful that it would miss them. On July 14th, he took Grenal on a trip to look for a suitable spot. Bad weather forced them to land on the beach, away from the cabin. They had to manage without food or good shelter, apart from a canvas riddled with holes, for over 24 hours until the weather had gotten well enough for them to bag a couple of widgeons and make for a cabin on foot. Well, Musgrave said that he had to get back, weather be damned, since he needed to wind the chronometer. And Renal was like, I'm not staying here alone, I'm coming with you. They pulled up the boat as far as they could onto the beach, and made haste to their cabin. Eight clicks and six hours later, they arrived. It was well dark, and worn-out explorers were greeted with a warm meal of seal that George and Alec had bagged earlier that day. Musgrave and Renal went straight to sleep after eating, quote, requiring no rocking to put us to sleep that night. In the morning, the rain had stopped, so Musgrave and Renal went to get the boat. It started raining halfway back there. Finding a dry area to build a fire, when they reached the boat, they stripped down, dried their clothes, and had something to eat. This trip took the wind out of Musgrave's sails. He gave up on the lookout setup, was still he was still keen on keeping a watch out. Starting October, he declared to Renal, quote, I intend to go keep the lookout myself on that tall hill. I shall remain there until we give up all hopes of anyone coming. October. October was still a ways out. It was only mid-July at this point. They still had more of winter left to go. The end of July, temperatures dropped to minus five. They fell into a rhythm, Musgrave writes, quote, breakfast, seal, stewed to a soup, fried roots, boiled seal, or roast ditto. With water, dinner, ditto, ditto, supper, ditto, ditto. This repeated 21 times per week. Mussels or fish have become quite a rarity and we have been unable to get any for some time. 
By the very end of July, Renault recorded that they had been reduced to eating salted meat, which was rank and rancid, despite their best care. Depression hit them all so hard. They would turn into bed as soon as prayers were said, instead of holding school, in an effort to escape their hunger with sleep. That was until one night, when George went out to relieve himself, when he practically broke the door down trying to get back in and wake everyone else up. Renal describes what they saw as, quote, sheaves of fire of different colors, leaping and snaking in the sky. Yes, the men stood in the freezing cold, in awe of the aura, feeling the, quote, manifestation of the grandeur of nature and the power of the creator. The next day, they continued to forge their survival on the island, this time with a renewed vigor. Let's pan that focus up 30 k's to the north. Robert Holding was preoccupied with finding a better place for camp. Searching beaches with slippery rocks, inland with thick scrub, further still where he had to crawl through twisted tree limbs. He broke through eventually into the bluff overlooking the bay and the sea. Directly in front of him was an inlet. Mostly grass with shrub and some seals lounging on the rocks nearby. Rocks between them also held a large quantity of limpets and mussels. We in the future aren't privy to the reasoning that comes about from this next action, but for whatever reason, Holding had this urge to return back to the camp. And walking back was a little bit easier. He went more directly back, and it only took him half a day. What he found at camp was, well, it was demoralizing. They'd done nothing to improve their circumstances. The steward and the two ship boys, they'd died. Quote, Our condition, as may well be imagined, was most miserable. Our clothes were very much torn, and at the time it was bitterly cold. Some days we had very fine weather. But in general, we had heavy gales from southwest, with great falls of rain and snow. This was, I think, about the month of July, Andrew Smith wrote. The hearth that the remaining men lay around had burned deeper into the ground. The peat beneath had given away. Bricks that had lined the cavity had fallen in, sort of circling the fire. Food was extremely scarce. Either the men were too weak or too apathetic to move. The two kids had done the bulk of the work, bringing water and roots until the moment that they had died. And they weren't even given a respectful funeral, cast aside and stripped for what little rags that they had. Someone told Holding that two sailors, Harvey and Fritz, had gone off on their own a couple of days ago, and no one had heard from them since. Perhaps he knew it was futile, but he tried anyway. Holding told the men about the better area that he had found, with plenty of food and a potentially better spot for a lookout and being spotted. Smith writes that, quote, All declined to go, with the exception of myself. 
So Smith and Holding left those folks where they were. On their way out, Harvey and Fritz were returning. Having just turned around too much, they agreed to join them. The four of them trudged down the beach. And they stuck to the beach instead of going in through the trees. Holding led the troop, and they managed to harvest shellfish, roots, everything they could along the beach as they went. They managed to bag themselves a seal as well. The three of them carried the meat. Fritz got the rest. They walked for a hot minute before Holding realised Fritz wasn't actually following. He'd dropped to the ground, you see, some moments back, and was just wolfing down the meat that he had left, the liver, just all completely raw. They decided to let it be and forge on. He'd catch up when he was done. They made themselves a fire and cooked the meat that they had. Fritz did indeed turn up, and he was empty-handed. They asked where the head and skin was, and he mumbled something about stashing it in the bush. First thing in the morning, Holding went back to look for the head and skin, knowing that they could be precious resources. He found birds had already shredded them to pieces. Worse still, he'd returned to the camp to hear bad news from Andrew Smith. Fritz was seemingly delirious, having woken people during the night asking if they had requested him to get water. Despite everyone telling him to get lost, we don't want water, he went down to the creek with a can and filled it. When he returned, he tried to wake Harvey. Harvey shoved him back out, sick of the guy. Fritz fell face first into the dirt and didn't get up. And that's where he was found the next morning. Because the ground was too hard and they lacked the tools, they moved the corpse into a thicket of trees and covered it with plenty of grass. In another effort to save as many people as he could, Holding got Harvey to go back and get the captain. After not hearing from them for a couple of days, Holding decided to go see them himself. Smith was left to look after the camp. On his way back, he passed Fritz's corpse, which Harvey had apparently been feasting on. There were only two people alive at the camp, Mahoney and Delgano. Harvey was dead. The carpenter was dead. Everyone had slowly succumbed to hunger and just given up. Mahoney tried to order Holding to get him some food. Holding refused. This resulted in Mahoney brandishing a jackknife and threatening to use it. Holding picked up a brick and told Mahoney, try it. Mahoney backed down. Leaving the day after to report to Smith that they were down to four, Holding and Smith moved their camp again, closer to the beach, and set up some more robust teepees. Holding still had the fencing wire with him, so he made himself a spear with one length and made a hook with the other. He was able to fish for more substantial food. He tried to make the seal skin into a net, uh, but the fish kind of just ate through it. Quote, After a time, the captain joined us, Smith wrote. Days passed, and they managed to survive. Holding wanted to know what was happening with Mahoney. He went back and found the man in the exact same spot, but on a stretcher, one leg fully extended and stiff. The fire had gone out, 
and he was cold. As in, dead. The first mate, Mahoney, was dead. Holding scratched into a roof slate a rough inscription. James Mahoney, wrecked on the ship Invercold, May 10th, 64. It was August 12th, 1964, three months since they had wrecked. Musgrave's entry was two days later, Sunday the 14th of August, 1864. The weather was fine, which by this island's accounts meant no wind and on and off rain and snow. After some hunting in the morning, Musgrave spent the evening sitting on the rock, watching the horizon, expecting a vessel to be sighted. It was during this time, as he occasionally cast an eye over the wreckage of the Grafton, that he had himself an idea. Despite the Grafton having sunk, it was in one piece. Sure, some of the decking had come adrift, and if they could roll her over, they could patch her up. They might have a ship sturdy enough to make it to New Zealand. Needless to say, it would be a very big job. Even the first thing they had to do, flipping the Grafton back over, would be an ordeal in of itself. But, damn it, they would try. Not wanting to wait for warmer weather, everyone jumped in the freezing water to move the rocks out of the direction the Grafton would turn over to. After that, they removed the sandstone blocks from the storage to make it as light as possible. They then tried to pump the water out, uh, but it did fill as fast as it emptied. After all, there was a hole in it. They eventually managed to flip the ship, only to find the hull on the other side. It didn't just have a hole, it was Swiss cheesed. It would be almost impossible to mend this one, since the planks had been completely splintered away. Musgrave had given the men hope, only for it to be dashed away. Withdrawing from the crew, he kept to himself through this new, refreshed bout of depression. It was now September, and the weather just got worse and worse. Musgrave wrote that it was, quote, not fit to go outside the door if it could be avoided. Food dropped to low levels, and they were forced to battle the storms. Less and less seal meat could be found. Renal, who hated the saccharine plants most of all, wrote that their, quote, position becomes more and more critical. September 21st. They were desperate enough to launch the boat despite the gale and hail and rain. They were forced to spend the night shivering with very little to show for it. When they finally got back to their cabin, Musgrave noted in his journal that it was the 10th anniversary of his marriage. September 25th, Renal records a bountiful hunt in which three sealed carcasses were bagged. And just like that, it was October. If their bankroll back in Sydney had kept their word, it was time now for help to arrive. (laughs) 
spirits were very much not higher on the other side of the island. Holding and Smith went back and forth in a somber game of who's next, after they had found Mahoney dead. They might have a reason to, since it was looking very bad for them at the moment. Their primary food source was out of spawning season, and it was difficult to find. While the others wallowed, Holding went out on his own again. Well, he didn't really go anywhere, he just went on his own often, looking for another food source. And he was nice about it. When he managed to catch a large quantity of fish, he did share it with the other two. That is, until he asked Smith to help him carry a haul, and Smith just straight up refused. So Holding did the most sensible thing he's ever done, and told him, fine, catch your own food. And even though Holding had been keeping to himself, this event caused the captain and the first mate to ostracize him. They moved their camp a ways up the beach and refused to interact with him for several weeks, which kind of just suited Holding fine. In fact, he managed to get himself a seal at the end of those few weeks. It was the smell of the cooking meat that led Delgano and Smith to talking to him again, though there were still hostilities between them. They continued to live separately, but Holding went back to sharing his food once again with them. In addition to food, Holding set about making a better shelter. He erected a decent hut, made of sturdy poles and bound with sealskin rope, and a thatched roof on three sides. Inside, he had himself a little bunk, and finalized the hut with a door. By now, it was late October, five months and 16 lives had gone since the Invercold had been shipwrecked. <laughs> Musgrave was deep, deep, deep in the throes of depression by the last week of October. He spent every spare moment he had looking for sails on the horizon. His sleep had been affected for he feared a ship would sail past while they slept. Quote, My eyes are positively weak and bloodshot with anxious looking, Musgrave wrote in his journal. Renal wrote Musgrave would frequently lament it would have been fine if it were only him, but he had a wife and children. They were depending on him. He became desperate enough to suggest trying for New Zealand in just the dinghy. Just hear Renal and they would send help as soon as they got to New Zealand. Harry, Alec, and George. Well, they were understandably against the idea, and the subject was dropped pretty quickly. To exasperate the situation, Musgrave's physical health was deteriorating, more so than the others. One night, away from the cabin on a seal hunting trip, they roasted some mussels. After eating them, Musgrave doubled over in agony, and, quote, endured the cruelest pain. His cries filled the others with dread, and they didn't stop as darkness fell. Whatever it was, thankfully it subsided, though when and how isn't recorded. He just got better, thankfully. It was soon popping season, and with that, the approach of summer, and the men were once again given a bounty of meat.
Robert Holding was building a coracle. Taking wattle branches to make a frame, he stretched seal skins over it until it held. Finding it difficult to do alone, he went out on a limb and asked Delgano and Smith to help out. They were unusually enthusiastic to help. They cut and trimmed the branches until Holding weaved something that one could fit in that would take a person across the bay towards nearby inlets. It was November 5th, and Holding was given the job of testing it out. It was a little bit leaky, but managed to hold together enough for Holding to paddle out and gather three lobsters that had been feeding near the surface. The next day, he went out again with his fishing hook and returned with four dozen fishes after just two hours. It was a nice but short-lived treat for spawning season for the lobsters soon ended thereafter. Holding next tried for a small island that had had some seals on it in the distance. He had named the island Rabbit Island, but it was actually named Rose Island officially on the maps. Dude almost died. He miscalculated the tide, an oar snapped, and Eddie caught the sinking boat, and he was kicked up into the surf. He managed to get to waist-deep water and hauled the stupid boat onto the beach. The island that Holding had called Rabbit Island had a lot of, well, rabbits on it. They'd eaten everything but the hardiest of grasses, but Holding thought that they might be a good source of food and they could see more of the horizon from this island. He drifted back to the mainland and told the other two men what he had found. And so the plan. The plan was to go back to the abandoned village, gather the bricks and other building material, haul it back to the beach they were currently at, and ferry it to Rabbit Island. And by God, they worked at it. But alas, before they could move the items to the island, they lost their little boat. Not to be deterred from their project, they just built themselves another one. One that Smith wrote was, quote, somewhat better than the other. And that is where we're going to end this episode, with the crew from the Invercold hopefully building a little structure at Rabbit Island, they've got themselves a boat, they've got themselves some food, they've got some resources, everything's going good so far, and the crew of the Grafton with a bigger supply of meat and a project. Thank you for listening to the Sector Murder Podcast.